Rochelle Zuck has long been interested in early American literature and culture. Her work began at the College of William and Mary, where she graduated summa cum laude and joined the ranks of Phi Beta Kappa scholars in 2001. Her undergraduate thesis was on Mark Twain, and she came to Penn State as an MA student interested in pursuing studies in earlier American literature and culture. While she studied with us, she developed a rich expertise in British and American studies of the 18th century, American studies of the 19th and early 20th centuries, and Native American studies. She earned her MA from Penn State in 2003 and her PhD in 2008. I feel profoundly honored to have served as Rochelle's dissertation director. After Rochelle's defense, one of my colleagues remarked that hers was the best dissertation defense he had ever participated in. He said, and I'm quoting, it was like talking with a colleague about all of these important matters in American literary history. He elaborated, Rochelle is a master. She is in complete control of the text she is studying, and she has so much to offer about their context and literary history generally. Our colleagues evidently also admired Rochelle's exceptional abilities. While she was at Penn State, Rochelle received several distinguished grants. I'm going to name them because they are distinguished. She received an Institute of the Arts and Humanities Graduate Student Summer Residency, the George and Barbara Kelly Fellowship uh, at Penn State. It's offered by the Department of English, the Philip Young Award, and in addition to these local awards, she received a competitive stipend to attend a research seminar that was held by a professor at the University of Iowa at the Newberry Library in Chicago. So um, my colleagues early understood Rochelle's interest in the archive and um, certainly wanted to forward her on her journey. Rochelle Rainieri Zook is an assistant professor of early American literature at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Her teaching research interests include African-American literature, American Indian literatures, political theory, and constructions of citizenship in America between the era of nation formation and the Civil War. Her talk today, which benefited from archival work she performed last summer at the Library Company of Philadelphia, forms part of her current book in progress, and the book's title is Imagined Citizens, Ethnic Nationalisms, and Crises of Citizenship in Early America. This is a revision of her dissertation, but what she's presenting today is entirely new work um, based on research she performed this summer. I hope you'll join me in extending a warm welcome to Rochelle, um, who's now our colleague, Rochelle Rainier-Zook. Thank you very much for coming out on this snowy winter day. I feel right at home coming from Duluth. Um, so uh, I would just like to offer a few thank yous before I start. First of all, uh, thank you to Carla Mulford for uh, her unfailing support and encouragement throughout my graduate process and beyond. Uh, thank you to Sean Gowdy and Marika Takomi uh, for putting on the Moments of Change series and for giving me the opportunity to participate. I'd also like to thank more broadly the Institute for Arts and Humanities and the Penn State English Department um, who have um, given me a lot over the years. And thank you to Rob Lyle for the technical assistance um, and for miking me up. <laughs> and uh, finally, thank you to my father who braved the weather to, to drive from Oil City to see me and uh, for his support uh, now and always. 
Uh, my, the title of my talk today is My Brethren of the Quill, Writing and Revolution Among the Irish in Philadelphia. And I'd just like to begin by gesturing toward how this fits into my larger project before I talk about uh, the subject at hand. The Alien and Sedition Acts passed in Philadelphia in 1798 were four laws that sought to define American citizenship vis-a-vis -vis other categories such as alien friends and alien enemies, codify naturalization processes, and squelch political opposition. This legislation raised the residency requirements for citizenship to 14 years and gave the president the power to deport non-citizens whom he felt were a threat to the peace and stability of the United States. The definition of citizenship that emerged from the Alien and Sedition Acts was predicated on U.S. birth or prolonged exposure to American social and political culture, a lack of attachment to foreign nations, and good character, specifically not critiquing the government in print. The Alien and Sedition Acts were prompted in part by the presence of large numbers of Irish immigrants in coastal U.S. cities, particularly Philadelphia, and the active role that many Irish and Irish Americans played in party politics and the oppositional press. The passage of these laws marks a fascinating moment in American political and literary history, a moment of change, if you will. Um, and this moment was defined by state attempts to deal with foreign others on a more or less individual or case-by-case -case basis. In the context of my larger project, this period stands as a counterpoint to 19th century U.S. strategies of population management. So I just wanted to offer, uh, so that we could ground ourselves uh, in the historical moment, this plan of Philadelphia, which was made in 1794 uh, by P.C. Varl, so we can see um, the size of the, the city that we're, we're talking about. As the capital city in the 1790s and home to many immigrant populations, Philadelphia was central to the debates surrounding U.S. citizenship and naturalization policies. Drawing on the work of Irish-American journalists, editors, and activists living and working in Philadelphia, the talk that follows will suggest the ways in which Irish writings offered a proliferation of perspectives that troubled the very definitions of American citizenship. Rather than presenting a, a united front of us against them, Irish immigrants brought with them from Ireland tactics of crowd resistance and guerrilla-style organization. Britain had approached the Irish through the lens of a kind of divide and conquer strategy, and Irish in America made that division into a strength. Ultimately, I argued that the discursive strategies of Irish fraternal organizations, such as the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick, and individual writers such as Matthew Carey, John Binns, John Daly Burke, and William Duane, reveal the virtual and performative nature of citizenship in early America and the ways in which non-citizen status could be strategically occupied, two points I will address more later on. This talk will have four main sections, a comparison of two key moments in Irish-American relations in Philadelphia, which could be titled A Tale of Two Riots, a brief overview of Irish immigration to America, a discussion of anti-Irish sentiment and the Alien and Sedition Acts, and finally, a discussion of Philadelphia Irish and the practices of citizenship. Along the way, I have a few visual images to supplement my discussion. And first, because we do often think of the famine Irish of the mid-19th century as emblematic of uh, 
the situation of Irish peoples in America, I want to offer um, a comparison of two moments, uh, one in the 1840s and one in the 1790s, to suggest some of the, the continuities of the Irish-American experience, but also the way in which uh, the period of the 1790s was unique. In May of 1844, riots broke out in the Kensington District of Philadelphia between members of the American Republican Party, a group later known as the Know Nothing Party, some of whom were Protestants of Irish descent and Irish Catholics. By the mid-1840s, the American Republican Party was gaining strength for their platform, which included extending naturalization periods to 21 years, limiting immigration from Catholic countries, and making native birth a prerequisite for holding public office. Catholicism was, by the mid-19th century, the largest single religious denomination in the United States, and fears circulated among Protestants about popery and Irish plots to subvert the US government. Tensions had been building in Philadelphia for some time, amid rumors that Irish Catholics were trying to have the Bible banned in public schools. During these riots, 14 people were reportedly killed, Many more were injured. Numerous buildings were destroyed or damaged, including the Hibernia Fire Station, 30 homes, St. Michael's Catholic Church and Rectory, the Seminary of the Sisters of Charity, St. Augustine's Catholic Church, and one school. The riots continued of June in that same year in the mostly Irish district of Southwark, and the total damages from the riots totaled more than $150,000, which is estimated to be about $3 million in our own day. The nativist dead were eulogized in the press as martyrs, and images showed them draped in the American flag and expiring in the arms of their fellow citizens in scenes rep reminiscent of Michelangelo's Pieta. Here we have uh, a print by Washington Peel, The Three Days of May, Columbia mourns her citizens slain. We have the nation figured as Columbia uh, mourning these nativist dead uh, who um, in the were framed in the press as, as dying in the hands of the Irish. Now note that many of the, the people who uh, were involved in the riot on both sides were Irish. Uh, but this becomes mythologized um, in the American um, historical record. Articles, songs, and epic poems denounced the, quote, slot hounds of the Pope who trampled on American liberty and defiled it with their, quote, rabid slime. Irish leaders defended themselves, arguing that they had made no attempts to ban the Bible, but merely requested that Catholic children have the option to read the Catholic version of the Bible in school, and they reminded readers of their status as American citizens. The 1844 riots and discussions that they generated in the Philadelphia press shared some similarities with an earlier riot that occurred in 1799, dubbed quote, a more daring riot than we remember to have outraged the civil law and decorum of society for more than 40 years by Federalist editor William Cobbett, the skirmish took place in the churchyard of St. Mary's Catholic Church when a group of Irish Americans and recent immigrants went to the churchyard to gather signatures for their petition against the Alien Acts. Petitioners, many of whom were naturalized citizens, were hesitant to sign the petition and wary of the petitioners' reported ties to radical groups such as the United Irishmen. A physical altercation ensued, and one of the petitioners, Dr. James Reynolds, discharged his pistol. This resulted in the arrest and subsequent trial of the petitioners, Reynolds, William Duane, Robert Moore, and Samuel Cummings, for a seditious riot. The four were found not guilty. 
Articulated not only in the courtroom, but also in the periodical press, discussions of this so-called riot revealed not only the antagonisms between Native Americans and Irish Americans, but also divisions within the Irish community. More importantly for our purposes today, the trial and press coverage of the 1799 riot focused on the foreign nation, nature of the petitioners, although Duane, for one, was a US citizen. Members of Philadelphia's Irish immigrant community owned property, ran businesses, petitioned the US government, exercised freedom of the press, and even sometimes voted without being US citizens. Yet Duane's status as a citizen did not make him an American in the eyes of some of his fellow Philadelphians. His situation, like those of the other Irish Americans in the 1790s, exposed the fractures in constructions of American US citizenship. So in other words, we have similarities between these two historical moments in that both pointed to issues of citizenship and naturalization and suggest divisions within the Irish community. However, in their religious component, we see a shift in numbers, whereas in the 1840s, we have a primarily Catholic Irish population who has become synonymous with being Irish in America. Um, in the 1790s, the majority of immigrants were Irish Protestants. Um, so as I'll talk about later on, that engenders uh, different kinds of questions. The United States did not institute legal measures for defining American citizenship and the naturalization process until the 1790s. According to political scientist Roger Smith, quote, the Constitution did not define or describe citizenship, discuss criteria for inclusion or exclusion, or address the sensitive relationship between state and national citizenship, end quote. Citizenship was originally under the jurisdiction of individual states, but during the Constitutional Convention, George Mason of Virginia, Governor Morris of Virginia, and others expressed concerns over growing numbers of immigrants and their role in American politics. Fears about immigrants from revolutionary France, Haiti, and Ireland sparked debates about the nature of American citizenship and the process of naturalization. Concerns about foreign nationals subverting the health of the American body politic from within were rampant. If America allowed foreign citizens access to political power, it was argued, they would always seek to advance the interests of their home country before those of the United States. The first attempt to legislate the naturalization process at the federal level came in 1790 when Congress passed the Federal Naturalization Law, which required that prospective citizens live in the United States for two years prior to submitting their application. Subsequent legislation passed in 1795 extended the residency requirement to five years prior to application and required a declaration of intention to be filed at least three years before an individual applied for naturalization. The Naturalization Act of 1797 raised the residency requirement to 14 years and required all immigrants living within the United States, as well as those arriving after the passage of the law, to be registered. In addition to upping the residency requirements, these acts put increasing emphasis on good character. The Naturalization Acts made citizenship contingent on character and imagined that character to be shaped by prolonged exposure to US political institutions. The implication seemed to be that only American birth or a lengthy process of enculturation could make one a citizen. George Washington's 1796 farewell address frequently included, alluded to the dangers of foreign influence, and his successor, John Adams, argued in 1798 that true Americans were those who, quote, had no attachments or exclusive friendship for any foreign nation. Just as political leaders worried about divided sovereignty on a national level, 
they also feared such divisions within individuals. Now I'd like to talk for a moment more about uh, Irish immigration to Philadelphia. We have here a membership certificate uh, from the Hibernian Society for the Relief of Immigrants, which was founded by Matthew Carey. So all members would have gotten uh, this type of certificate, which shows uh, images of Columbia and her handmaidens, and also an image of the ship uh, in the background. As a bustling coastal city that was a hub of both political and literary activity, Philadelphia attracted large numbers of immigrants during the last two decades of the 18th century. In addition to large numbers of German immigrants, post-revolutionary Philadelphia became home to increasing numbers of people from countries in the midst of their own revolutions, including France, Ireland, and Haiti. As Charles Fanning has noted, the Irish were easily the largest non-English immigrant group in America just after the revolution. During the 18th century, Ulster Protestants, uh, people of Scottish descent, entered the United States at a rate of approximately 3,000 to 5,000 people a year, although increases in rack renting boosted these numbers to 10,000 a year from 1771 to 1775. The famine of 1740 and 41 prompted people from all areas of Ireland to consider immigration, and by 1790, nearly one-sixth of the U.S. population of approximately three million people were either born in Ireland or of Irish descent. Although precise figures are difficult to come by, of the roughly 447,000 Irish Americans, 280,000 of these were Ulster Scots, and 106,000 were what we might call native Irish, mostly Catholic. It's important to note that um, who we would consider Irish today, native Irish, uh, is not quite the same as what they would consider. They would, uh, people who were of Scotch-Irish descent talked of themselves as Irish and were considered so by others. Uh, so when I, I speak of the Irish, I'm including this uh, entire group of people. So 280,000 approximately were Ulster Scots, 106,000 were native Irish, and of the remaining 61,000, about half were Irish Catholics from Ulster and their descendants, and the rest were descended from English settlers. Pennsylvania was an important site of Irish settlement, not just because of the volume of immigrants who settled there, but because it became a space for both Ulster Irish and native Irish communities. Philadelphia was particularly attractive to Irish immigrants, with over 10,000 people entering the U.S. through the ports in the Delaware region during the 1790s alone. Many Irish also moved west, however, to the back country and Pittsburgh, which would become known as a place associated with Scotch-Irish Presbyterianism and industrial growth. It's important to note, however, that although nativist writers would speak of the Irish as a collective body, the so-called Ulstermen and Irishmen created separate communities and distinct social networks in 18th century Philadelphia. Why was Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia in particular, popular with Ulster Scots and native Irish alike? One of the main reasons was economic. Immigrants from Ulster flocked to the frontiers of central Pennsylvania, western Maryland, and the Carolinas to farm, although Ulster Scots would later become associated with industrial centers such as Pittsburgh. The Quaker elite met these Anglo-Irish Protestants with some hostility. In her article, Held Captive by the Irish, Quaker Captivity Narratives in Frontier Pennsylvania, Joanna Brooks argues that, quote, just as Irish Catholic immigrants were constructed in 19th century political cartoons as related to African Americans, so Scots-Irish were constructed in 18th century political discourse in relation to American Indian savages. 
She traces the way in which captivity narratives framed Ulster Scots, like American Indians, as a violent threat to Anglo-American social and political culture. As an aside, threatening Irish characters play roles in two of Charles Brockton Brown's novels, Wieland and Edgar Huntley, uh, which are both set um, in the, the kind of greater Philadelphia, eastern Pennsylvania area. Many native Irish who came to America worked as indentured servants, and a considerable number of these laborers Laborers worked on the farms of Philadelphia, Lancaster, Chester, and Bucks counties, provided domestic labor in the city, or were apprenticed to tradesmen and craftsmen. As a site of trade and publishing, Philadelphia was comparable to Edinburgh, Dublin, and Bristol, and Irish immigrants made their mark early on the publishing scene. One of Matthew Carey's first activities after arriving in the United States was to found the Pennsylvania Herald, which was financed by the support of the Marquis de Lafayette. Carey would establish two other periodicals, and his brother James would start a total of nine during the course of his lifetime. William Duane became editor of the Philadelphia Aurora, and John Daly Burke founded the Polar Star in Boston and a timepiece in New York. Philadelphia also boasted several Irish fraternal organizations, such as the Friendly Sons and the Hibernian Society, founded by Carey in 1790, which assisted immigrants and created valuable social networks. Immigrants from Ireland were also drawn to the relative religious freedom that existed in Pennsylvania. Before 1800, most Irish immigrants were Protestant, but Irish Catholic populations played a visible role in Philadelphia before the Revolution, as suggested by the presence of Irish Catholic churches such as St. Joseph's, established in 1733, and St. Mary's, established in 1765, and Irish taverns, which historian Dennis Clark argued were important sites of Irish Catholic sociality. Pennsylvania and Rhode Island were two of the most religiously tolerant colonies, and Pennsylvania was one of the only places during the colonial era where Catholic mass could be celebrated publicly. Anti-Catholic violence did erupt, however, as in the 1755 destruction of St. Joseph's, Philadelphia's only Catholic chapel at that time, and the 1760 destruction of a Catholic church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yet by the beginning of the 19th century, Philadelphia had three Catholic churches, and for its time, a vibrant Catholic press. During the early national period, Philadelphia was the first and only center of Catholic publications until Fielding Lucas Jr. opened a publishing house in Baltimore in 1816. The Douay Bible, the first edition of the Catholic Bible to be published in the Americas, was produced in Philadelphia by Matthew Carey. In addition to economic and religious reasons, some Irish immigrants came to Philadelphia for political purposes, and it was these people, some of whom were part of the radical United Irishmen, who would garner the most attention in the 1790s and the first decades of the 19th century. The United Irish Societies were established in Irish cities such as Belfast and Dublin in 1791 by members of the volunteer militias who had agitated for economic and political reform. These militias had been formed ostensibly to protect Ireland from France during the American Revolution. These societies always had a strong literary component and sponsored the publication of reform-oriented newspapers, broadsides, and pamphlets, as well as the writings of Thomas Paine and Irish radicals such as Wolfe Tone. In 1794, in response to pressures from the British authorities, the United Irish Societies began to meet in secret and circulate their message among the lower classes in Ireland. British suppressions of radicalism and the failed uprising of 1798 forced many United Irishmen to immigrate to the United States. 
Federalists were outraged to learn that in 1798, British authorities were negotiating with imprisoned United Irish leaders to find out about their revolutionary agitation and relations with the French. In exchange for such information, the United Irish leaders would be freed and allowed to emigrate to any neutral country, including the United States. The American minister to Great Britain, Rufus King, was able to block the emigration of these men for a few years, but many ultimately made their way to America. The American Society of United Irishmen was founded in the summer of 1797 in Philadelphia, and societies in other states such as New York and North Carolina soon followed. The Philadelphia Society developed from a less formal group of radicals that included James Reynolds, William Duane, and John Daly Burke. Among United Irishmen and their fellow radicals, there were various levels of involvement. After British efforts to suppress the United Irish societies, members in both Ireland and America took the membership oath secretly. There were also some who did not publicly proclaim their involvement, but um, nevertheless in their private correspondence and private business uh, seemed to be involved. Uh, a case in point would be Matthew Carey and his brother James, who publicly denied their involvement, but in the words of one historian, were up to their necks in the dealings of the United Irishmen. Specific details on membership are unavailable, but Duane claimed that the group never had more than 60 or 70 members at a time. Scholars have noted, however, that Duane would have had good reason for de-emphasizing the group's size in certain situations so that he could portray his opponents as paranoid and inflammatory. William Cobbett, who had his own political reasons for inflating the size of the group, estimated their numbers at more than 1,500 members. John Ward Fenno, editor of the Federalist Gazette of the United States, one of the leading Federalist newspapers, published a list of individuals who he claimed were United Irish leaders in 1798, which featured Matthew and James Carey, John Black, the Scottish Democrat and muckraking journalist James Callender, and Congressman Matthew Lyon. Now, as I said, uh, many people publicly denied their involvement, but scholars have since shown that uh, Fenno's uh, estimations may have been correct. Uh, ultimately, neither their contemporaries nor modern scholars knew who for sure was and was not a United Irishman because of the secrecy with which their membership was cloaked and because of their organizational model of small cells of six to eight members. They were not a unified body. They were these independent, uh, more or less independent cells. Historian Margaret McAleer argues that an examination of the meeting notice and other printed materials relating to the society suggests a significant body of members. Membership in the United Irishmen was not limited to those with genealogical ties to Ireland, however. Evidence suggests that the United Irish sought members from various sectors of Philadelphia society, including unnaturalized immigrants, working class people, and African Americans. Charges of African-American involvement in the society were vocally proclaimed by the Federalists, who claimed that the group met in an African free school and counted free African-Americans as among their members. Capitalizing on the possibility of forming a massive voting bloc, Duane and Michael Lieb, who was influential within Philadelphia's German community, began to form a political alliance in the early years of the 19th century. Opening up their organization to members from different uh, nations and racial groups and forming alliances with other ethnic communities further sparked federalist fears of widespread rebellion. Such heterogeneous communities also complicated neat binaries of us against them and belied the fiction of a unified American populace. 
Decried by their American political enemies as Jacobins and a threat to the American body politic, the United Irishmen and other radicals who traveled in their circles were actually complex networks of individuals with varying political perspectives. They've been characterized generally as admiring the political philosophies of Thomas Paine, expressing a belief that the United States had abandoned some of its Republican character by the 1790s and supporting the French Revolution. Irish radicals varied in their responses to charges of Jacobinism and French sympathies. James Carey embraced the term Jacobin, while others such as John Daly Burke, John Binns, and David Bailey Warden sought to distance themselves from this epithet. Despite their differences of opinion, Irish radicals were able to use the social and political networks established by earlier immigrants and adapt their knowledge of publishing to fit new political exigencies in America and reiterate their calls for political reform in Ireland. One of the events that prompted Irish immigrants from different backgrounds to pursue collective political action in the US was the Jay Treaty, which was passed by the Senate in 1795. This treaty was an attempt by Federalist administration to avoid what they saw as inevitable war with Great Britain, uh, who had been engaged in a war with France since 1793. The treaty required Great Britain to abandon forts in the Northwest Territories, while the United States agreed to allow Great Britain to dictate the terms of its trade and shipping. In effect, the United States was siding with the British against the French, a move that many Republicans saw as a return to the colonial relationship with Britain, a move that particularly angered the Irish. Hamilton Rowan, member of the United Irishmen, led a rally against the Jay Treaty in Philadelphia, in which as many as one-fifth of the crowd were Irish or of Irish descent. Matthew Carey described the treaty as a, quote, baleful compact, and both James Reynolds and William Duane were vocal critics of the treaty. Still angry over the Jay Treaty, Reynolds and Duane would later join a Philadelphia club that critiqued President Washington for his involvement with the treaty and what they believed was a general pro-British faction within his administration. I'd like to turn now to discussions of anti-Irish sentiment and the Alien and Sedition Acts in particular. The involvement of prominent United Irishmen and radical Philadelphians of Irish descent in political clubs, publishing, and political agitation caused a great deal of anxiety among native-born Federalists. As early as 1797, the term Native American was used by the Carlisle Gazette and Philadelphia's Gazette of the United States to differentiate individuals who were born in America from people of color and those born abroad. Federalists feared the revolutionary potential of the United Irishmen, and Federalists such as William Cobbett, a.k.a. Peter Porcupine, who we have here, warned of a conspiracy between the French, the United Irishmen, and African Americans to subvert the government of the United States. The formation of the American Society of United Irish coincided with increasing tensions between the U.S. and France, the seizure of American ships by the French, and the XYZ affair. Irish immigrants and Pennsylvanians of Irish descent were all framed as United Irishmen by Federalists so as to heighten the sense of danger from foreign infiltration. The campaign against the United Irishmen and other Irish immigrants was waged largely in the periodical press. Two Philadelphia editors in particular, John Fenno of the Gazette of the United States and William Cobbett, editor of Porcupine's Gazette, and uh, as well as numerous pamphlets, were particularly vitriolic. In A Bone to Gnaw for the Democrats, published in 1795, Cobbett's anti-immigrant and racial politics were quite clear. He referred to the Irish as the emigrating menace and United Irish leaders as, quote, 
band of obscure and illiterate persons. <coughs> Responding to the United Irish claims that people like other commodities will emigrate to better markets, Cobit suggested that Irish laborers would be more valuable of a commodity if their faces were blackened and they were sold as African slaves, an act that would save the Irish cargo from, as he called it, depreciation. The Gazette of the United States and Porcupine's Gazette reveled in lurid details of Irish violence, calling them cutthroats, assassins, and united dagger men. Benno's paper went a step further and argued that the Irish were not only violent, but were the antithesis of American national character. I'll quote an extended passage here. The genius of an American soars to everything noble, of a seditious Irishman to meanness. The American disposition delights in uprightness and every species of ingeniousness, the outcast Irishman in injustice and every species of low depreciation. The American uses every effort to promote the welfare of his country and especially to support the laws and constituted authorities. The abandoned Irishman's chief pride is to destroy his country's dearest rights, to trample down her laws and overturn all legal power. Moreover, it was thought that the Irish could not be changed or assimilated into American society. He went on to say, as well we might attempt to tame the hyena or as to Americanize an Irishman. Expanding on the stereotypes of the wild Irishman, this article by Fenno portrays the Irish as incapable of participating in civil society. In a point that was echoed by Federalist Peter von Schock, the Gazette framed Irish radicals as traitors against their own government who were trying to refashion the meaning of American citizenship. Noting that the advertisement for the American Society of United Irishmen mentioned tickets of civism, presumably membership cards, Von Schack wondered whether there was to be a new standard of American citizenship. Being born in the United States and experiencing the hardships of the revolution were necessary qualifications for citizenship, he argued, not merely the ability to own property or achieve economic independence. Clearly, the presence of Irish radicals whose members were dedicated to, quote, the attainment of liberty and equality in mankind in whatever nation I reside destabilized ideas of American citizenship and by extension, citizenship in general, by divorcing it from ideas of place. What did, what did it mean if people could emigrate to a new country and play an active role in the shaping of that nation's politics? What then did it mean to be a citizen of the United States? Federal, Federalists answered these questions by claiming that Irish radicals did not have a genuine interest in American politics, but were in league with the French to subvert the US from within. Fenno and Cobit, who had been monitoring the activities of the United Irishmen for some time, were among the most ardent proponents of this theory. The title of Cobit's 1798 pamphlet, Detection of a Conspiracy Formed by the United Irishmen with the Evident Intent of Aiding the Tyrants of France in Subverting the Government of the United States, sums up his belief on the purpose of the United Irishmen. And I quote, I have long thought that the French have formed a regular plan for organizing an effective an active force within these states, and I am persuaded that after what I am going to lay before the public shall have been read with attention, few people will be so blind as not to perceive that my opinion was well founded. The Parisian propaganda have in every country they have wished to ruin found villains in abundance ready to engage in their service. The ambitious they have allured with the prospect of power, and the needy by that of pillage. In America, there is less ambition and less poverty than in most other countries, and therefore, though some traitors have been found amongst them, 
the natives were not so much to be relied upon in the prosecution of any design evidently hostile to the interests and honor of their country as the natives were reluctant uh, and resistant to French propaganda, Cobit argued, immigrant populations were targeted. Quote, ignorance allied with honesty was no tool for them, the French, to work with. Real sincere villainy, then, without property, without principles, without country, and without character, dark and desperate, unnatural and bloodthirsty ruffians, these were what they wanted, and where they where could they have sought them with such certainty of success as among that restless tribe, the emigrated United Irishmen? The wretches known by this name has, have escaped from their country to avoid a punishment justly due to their multitude of crimes, end quote. Although many Irish radicals were successful businessmen and property owners, they are framed here as masterless men, rootless criminals without any link to civil society. They are, in short, unnatural men. Fenno played more explicitly on the emotions of his Philadelphia readers, suggesting that they too could be the victims of violent massacre. In a 1798 issue of the Gazette, he warned his readers that Irish violence could break out without warning. Think you, he wrote, the victims of St. Bartholomew's Day imagined an hour before their fate the terrible stroke which awaited them. Recalling the 1572 massacre of thousands of Protestants, Fenno also implicitly suggested a religious component to the Irish conspiracy. While many of the United Irish were Protestants, Fenno invokes the fear of Irish Catholic mob violence akin to that which French Catholics unleashed against the Huguenots. It was not Catholicism alone that was the issue. German Catholics who were prevalent in Philadelphia in the late 18th century were not subjected to the same kind of surveillance and criticism. In fact, German immigrants were often held up as the ideal industrious, modest, and rational. Fenno's comments gestured toward the intersection between ethnicity and religion as the subject of, quote, Native American fears. The fear of mob violence was presumably drawn from the United Irish commitment to action in cases of urgency, as they said it, and from the secrecy with which the United Irishmen guarded their activities. Irish connections with the Republican Party were only a front, believed Fenno, for their attempts to Jacobinize and convert the U.S. population. And so he concluded that, quote, every United Irishman ought to be hunted from the country as much as a wolf or a tiger. Here, as with his comments that the Irish could no more be Americanized than the hyena, Fenno links the Irish with animals, implying that they are not capable of the kind of rational behavior required of the American citizen. Numerous important studies have explored how the Irish became, quote, white, and here we see Irish Americans, like African Americans, were portrayed as subhuman and savage. These attacks on the Irish were not limited to the press, however, but also circulated within the federal government. So here we have Fenno's Gazette of the United States, and here we have a political cartoon entitled Congressional Pugilist, which I'll get to in a moment. Massachusetts Congressman Harrison Gray Otis made what is now referred to as his wild Irish speech in 1797, in which he claimed that he does not, quote, wish to invite hordes of wild Irishmen, nor the turbulent and disorderly parts of the world to come here, America, with a view to disturb our tranquility. In 1798, after a series of anti-Irish statements and personal attacks, Congressman Matthew Lyon, who came to America from Ireland as an indentured servant, spat in the face of Rufus Griswold. 
The two later came to blows in the congressional chamber, as we see here, with uh, Lyon wielding the fireplace tongs and Griswold with his cane. So if we think our own political moment is contentious, uh, the 1790s were as well. John Adams and other Federalist leaders were concerned about what they saw as a, quote, group of foreign liars who possessed a strange, mysterious influence in this country. The Alien and Sedition Acts were proposed as measures to remove foreign threats and silence criticism of the administration and other writings that might prove injurious to the United States. The Alien Friends Act of 1798 was the first federal law related to immigration to be passed in the United States. It authorized the president to, quote, order all such aliens as he may judge dangerous to the peace and safety of the United States or shall have reasonable grounds to suspect are concerned in any treasonable or secret machinations against the government thereof to depart from the territory of the United States. Passed shortly after the Alien Friends Act, the Alien Enemy Act allowed the president to deport any unnaturalized resident whose country of origin was at war with the United States. This is, incidentally, the only one of the four alien and sedition acts that is still in effect today. The Sedition Act, which expired in 1801, made it illegal to conspire against the United States or, quote, write, print, utter, or publish any false, scandalous, or malicious writings or writings against the government of the United States. While ostensibly directed at all immigrants, the Alien and Sedition Act specifically targeted what Otis called the hordes of wild Irish who emigrated to Philadelphia in the 1780s and 90s, seen as tools of the French, a kind of fifth column who threatened U.S. sovereignty, the Irish were vilified in the Federalist press. And finally, now I'd like to turn to the Irish response. As I alluded to before, their strategy was not uh, a unified response to a perceived norm, but a variety of shifting tactics that served to very much destabilize ideas of citizenship that were still in formation. Throughout the 1790s, Irish immigrants were characterized as a homogenous bunch of radicals by Federalists and others who sought to limit immigration and create harsher naturalization laws. Religious differences did not come to the forefront as they would in the Bible riots of the 1840s. Irish Americans, regardless of their citizenship status, were characterized as wild, lawless, radical aliens who could never be assimilated into American society because of their ties to the United Irishmen and Jacobins. When one looks closely at their literary productions and political activities, it becomes clear that Irish writers, editors, and residents of Philadelphia countered nativist stereotypes with a shifting array of perspectives, which complicated the already troubled definitions of citizenship and American identity. Even before the debates about the Alien and Sedition Acts, Irish Americans were thinking about the relationship between birth, character, and citizenship. The Friendly Sons of St. Patrick, a fraternal Irish organization formed in Philadelphia, highlighted the fluid nature of American citizenship by reversing the naturalization process and adopting George Washington as Irish in 1784. They wanted to make Washington a member of their society, but the membership requirement stated that full membership would only be extended to those of Irish birth or those who had at least one Irish parent. A historical account of the Friendly Sons, published by the Hibernian Society in 1844, summarizes the group's elision of their membership requirements. 
It is true that he, Washington, might have been elected as an honorary member, but whether the constitutional number of 10 was already full or whether it was more likely that they desired a closer and more intimate friendship with him than they enjoyed with the honorary members and wishing him to have all the privileges of a genuine son of St. Patrick, the fertile ingenuity of some of the members invented a plan by which General Washington could be converted into an Irishman and thereby at once rendered eligible. They reasoned in this way, we ourselves have no American blood in our veins, yet by adoption we have become members of the young Republic of America and thereby Americans. Why then may not the Society of the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick make General Washington an Irishman by adoption? This process of argumentation appears to have removed all scruples about the integrity of their rules and His Excellency General Washington, to use the language of the minutes of the 18th December 1781, was unanimously adopted, not elected, a member of the society. Rather than being a matter of birthplace or blood, the Friendly Sons defined citizenship as a process of ritual adoption. George Washington could, by virtue of his relationship with the Friendly Sons, be made into an Irishman, just as Irish immigrants could be made into Americans. The minutes of the Friendly Sons note that Washington accepted his place, but was not in regular attendance at the meetings. If the Federalists wanted to make citizenship and national identity matters of blood and descent, Irish immigrants were quick to remind them that some of their own could then be considered Irish. In the March 17, 1798 edition of the Philadelphia Aurora, William Duane reminded readers of I Alexander Hamilton's Irish parentage. Citizen Fenno in last Wednesday night's paper said that Burke the Wild Irishman is employed writing sedition. Calendar, a Scottish vagrant, has written libel on George Washington. What can ail the 6% federal debt interest people at Irishman, their own grand llama, the illustrious Alexander Hamilton, as far as his maternal descent can be traced, was the son of an Irish camp girl. Reflections upon a whole people in the mass are stupid. The people of New England are themselves sprung from a set of dissenters whom the government of England had proscribed either as radicals or nothing better. Here we see Duane exercising the kind of biting humor that made Federalists furious. He argues against the monolithic presentation of Irish character while also making a jibe at Hamilton's illegitimate birth. In a rhetorical strategy common to Philadelphia's Irish journalists, Duane also links Irish radicalism to the revolutionary spirit of New England. While portrayed as a unified body of radicals, Irish immigrants like Duane articulated their relationship to the United States quite differently in the 1790s. After his arrival in the United States, Napper Tandy maintained a sense of himself as Irish asserting that, quote, as an alien, it would be ungrateful of me to take any part in politics. Living in America did not make him an American, an attitude he shared with other United Irishmen, such as Wolfe Tone and Hamilton Rowan. Their primary focus was on the political situation in Ireland. John Daly Burke took an opposite position, arguing that as soon as the immigrant landed on American soil, that individual was, quote, virtually a citizen. He wrote, from the moment the stranger sets his foot on the soul of America, his fetters are rent in pieces, and the scales of servitude which he had contracted under European tyrannies fall off. He sees a moral, intrepid, and enlightened community ranged under the banners of equality and justice, and by the natural sympathy that subsists between the mind and everything that is amiable, he finds his affections irresistibly attracted. Burke's own experience as an editor, journalist, playwright, and political agitator suggests that he was in part able to enact a kind of virtual American citizenship. 
He was arrested in 1798 for declaring in his New York newspaper the timepiece that he hoped the French would invade the United States. Interestingly, it was the fact that Burke was not a citizen that allowed him to escape imprisonment, while John Adams and Timothy Pickering debated as to whether to charge Burke with sedition or deport him as an alien. Uh, Aaron Burr advised Burke that since he was not a U.S. citizen, he could avoid punishment if he left the United States and did not return. Burke promised to do so, but found that going to Virginia, stronghold of the Jeffersonian Democrats, was quite far enough. Burke's case illustrates that at least some Irish immigrants, particularly men with relatively privileged backgrounds, could reap the benefits of U.S. citizenship while still being able to elide some forms of state power. While immigrants were framed by some as, quote, lost for a time to society and themselves, Burke and others were able to exploit their position as virtual, if not actual, citizens. Despite the fact that they were not citizens, many Irish immigrants engaged in the same kind of activities that characterized American citizenship. Like Burke, they owned property and held jobs, as many Irish journalists were quick to point out. Uh, many non-citizens fought on the American side during the Revolution. And as one 1797 Pennsylvania state Senate race demonstrates, Irish immigrants also voted. The election of Israel Israel, a Democratic Republican candidate, was invalidated because of charges that Irish immigrants from Southwark and the Northern Liberties had cast ballots, and in some cases more than one. Uh, and in 1798, Irish immigrants invoked the right to petition when they submitted the plea of Aaron prepared by Reynolds and Duane to Congress in response to the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts. The petitioners claimed their indisputable right to, quote, personal liberty, their tranquility and safety, and argued that every resident of the United States, regardless of political status, was entitled to equal protection under the laws. They noted the various ways in which alien friends participated in American social and political life. Quote, for though an alien inhabitant may have been a resident for years with a recorded view to citizenship, may have vested his all in your corporations or lands by invitation of your legislatures, may have married into an American family, may have a number of native children left in his sole care and protection by the death of his American wife, though he may have pledged his person, his skills, and his labors in the form of partnerships and prudent debts to your citizens, though he may have abdicated his native rank and abjured his native allegiance in compliances with your statutes, yet he may be prevented under your alien laws from ever becoming a citizen of your adopted country. The petitioner showed how immigrants can participate in all of the practices associated with citizenship and can form various forms of attachment to the state, that they cannot claim the title of citizen as a result of the alien laws, which serve to strip them of the civil rights they possess as human beings. Like Burke's discussion of virtual citizenship, the plea challenged portrayals of immigrants as lost or alienated from society. Their discussion also raised questions about how citizens could be distinguished from aliens if the two groups are engaged in similar practices and social relations. Other Irish immigrants living and working in Philadelphia's fraught political climate further complicated the relationship between birthplace, nationality, and political status. Writing of himself in 1807, John Binns, editor of Philadelphia's Republican Argus and the Democratic Press, reflected that he was, quote, an Irishman by birth, an American by choice, and a united Irishman from principle. Here, Binns presents the kind of divided identity that Federalists feared. An individual could have ties to multiple countries and organizations over and above the place of one's birth. 
William Duane, editor of the Philadelphia Aurora, constantly blurred the boundaries between nationality, country of origin, and citizenship. He was born in New York near Lake Champlain to Irish parents and was an American citizen. He spent much of his youth, however, in Ireland before traveling to India and eventually moving back to the United States. Thus, he argued that he, quote, both was and was not an Irishman. He was American by birth, but his education, familial ties, and political identifications made him an Irishman. For Duane, as with Bin, citizenship and national identity were more than simply an accident of birth or a matter of blood. One could be both American and Irish. Duane held on to this dual sense of identity in the face of attacks from his political opponents. In the 1798 uh, edition of the Aurora, published on December 19th, he wrote, the Tories, when they find a man's public conduct so steadfast in the cause of the Constitution and civil liberty as to wound their feelings, resort to the stale trick of calling him an alien or a Frenchman or an Irishman. The nature of these aspersions, it must be confessed, is rather flattering considering whence they come and what is the cause of the assertion. His opponents did not stop at calling him an Irishman or a Frenchman, however, in an anonymous an anonymous author for the Gazette of the United States asserted that Duane had once passed for Jewish. He wrote, Duane was once a Jew clothesman in London. He passed in London under the name of Jew Ain. His brother went to France where his cutthroatical talents procured him a seat in the convention and afterwards in the Council of 500. Once again, this notion of passing or pretending reveals fears of the mutability of national and ethnic identity and political status. Within this context, Duane's remark that he both was and was not an Irishman suggests that identity does not have to be an either-or proposition. Duane was threatening precisely because his political and national affiliations were hard to pin down. In the midst of the political crisis surrounding the Alien and Sedition Acts, Secretary of State Timothy Pickering argued, the editor of the Aurora, William Duane, pretends that he is an American citizen, saying that he was born in Vermont, but was taken with his parents to Ireland where he was educated. I presume, therefore, that he is really a British subject and as an alien liable to be banished from the United States. He is doubtless a United Irishman and in the case of war and invasion by the French to join them. Here, Pickering creates another category of identity, the pretend citizen. If, as Philadelphia's Irish journalist argued, citizenship was enacted and performed rather than a, an essential quality, how then could citizens be easily discerned from non-citizens, erasing not just his Americanness but also his status as a citizen? Pickering frames Duane as an alien who could be easily removed from the United States. Duane not only complicated his own national identity, but he and other Philadelphians of Irish descent also recast their political opponents as a foreign threat, as demonstrated by his re references to Tories. Framing Federalists as Tories and Orangemen, Irish writers warned Philadelphians of a similar enemy within that threatened their liberties and worked to promote British interests. Taking their cue from Federalist opponents, Duane attacked Cobbett and Fenno as foreigners, agents of Great Britain who were stirring up trouble in the early American Republic. He even claimed that Cobbett was a British spy, although he never produced any evidence to this effect. The pages of the Aurora were by 1799 almost entirely consumed with the task of discrediting Cobbett and linking him with the British. This paper was not alone in this effort. James Carey's Daily Advertiser also highlighted Cobbett's status as an alien and a hireling of the British ministry. 
James's brother, Matthew Carey, further emphasized Cobbett's position as a British subject and thus an alien residing in the United States. In The Porcupiniad, a hudibrastic poem, he quotes Cobbett as remarking, thank heaven I am no citizen of America, and I would not exchange my title of the subject of King George for all the citizenships in the universe. As Carey portrays him, Cobbett rejects even the category of the citizen, preferring instead to imagine himself still a subject. The willingness of Irish and Irish Americans to recast their enemies as a foreign other speaks to the limitations of their vis visions of citizenship. Throughout their multiple definitions of citizenship as a kinship relationship, real or imagined, as a set of practices one engaged in, and as an imagined relationship between an individual and a country or countries of choice, the citizen was always presumed to be a white male. Several of Philadelphia's Irish leaders were silent on the subject of African-American slavery, while Matthew Carey and Thomas Brannigan advocated colonization. Shortly after his arrival in the United States, Carey discussed the idea of African colonization and his vision of a white American nation. Women were also notably absent from many Irish writings on American citizenship and national identity. In addition to the very popular Bunker Hill, John Daly Burke wrote a play about Joan of Arc entitled Female Patriotism. Burke, like many of his generation, saw women's civic role as that of wives and mothers supporting and nurturing male citizens. That many of these Irish men were able to pass as citizens or live productive lives as non-citizens speaks to the ways in which they were able to make themselves visible or invisible to the state at strategic moments. In conclusion, Irish writers and journalists living in Philadelphia in the 1790s had a profound effect on American citizenship and broader definitions of American national identity. In a period when definitions of citizenship were not yet fully solidified, Irish immigrants engaged in the practices of American civil society, working, owning property, entering into contractual relations, petitioning for redress of grievances, owning and editing periodicals, and voting, even though many were not officially US citizens. As John Daly Burke argued, many Irish were able to perform a kind of virtual citizenship. In so doing, they challenged popular perceptions of the immigrant as existing in a liminal state removed from public life, and they put pressure on legal distinctions between alien and citizen. Philadelphia's Irish population also had a broader impact on American political culture. They were a major force in swinging the balance of power from the Federalists to the Jeffersonian Democrats. As Federalist Congressman Uriah Tracy remarked after a tour of Pennsylvania in 1800, in my lengthy journey through this state, I've seen many, very many Irishmen, and with a few exceptions, they are the most God-provoking Democrats on this side of hell. And as historian David Wilson has argued, Irish immigrants, particularly those with ties to the United Irishmen, made America more democratic. They, quote, added momentum to pre-existing radical movements and encouraged earlier egalitarianism and anglophobic tendencies within the United States. Thank you. Okay, we have about 15 minutes for questions. Uh, anyone? When, when did all the Italian people come to uh, Philadelphia? I know there was a very large Italian population. That happened later in the 19th century, um, to what I know. That was more um, in the, the mid to late uh, 19th century. Um, the Irish, I think, um, were among Irish, Haitian, 
French and German immigrants were among some of the earliest, and I think Italian immigration happened later, although I, I can't give you um, numbers as to um, the, the exact uh, population that came over and settled, but I know they were later. Can I do that question? <laughs> the Italians uh, in oh, sure. the, um, came in the 1840s uh, in part because of the Italian revolutions, and so we have some famous writers who went over to study the revolutions in oh. Italy. So if you're interested in some of the first traces of Italians, it would be the 1840s. But Rochelle is quite right. They, they start showing up in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. And a similar kind of um, crush of nationalism occurs, especially, I think, in women's groups uh, mm -hmm. in terms of Italians, which you've studied in your, uh, and, and talked about in your dissertation. We, we find um, the women's uh, groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution and others um, emerge at precisely the time the Italians start showing up on the shores, which I find fascinating as an Italian-American. Um, but I have some questions <laughs> about oh, sure. the Irish. Um, you know, um, I found myself profoundly um, interested in the fact that the examples you're using are people who are able to use print to <laughs> disseminate their um, positions. And so um, I'm interested in the nexus between print and um, sort of questions of citizenship. But that led me to, to two questions that I bet you can, um, you know, I, I would hope if you, if you could just elucidate what other, since it was such an anxiety um, having these I this Irish presence, and you um, did talk about the kinds of jobs. Were um, Irish people artisans? What? Tell us a little more, if you would, about the range of jobs that they held, sure. um, their level of education. Up, you know, prior to arrival, were they educated people? I'd be interested in that. And um, were they able to hook up with people outside um, Irish clans, or did they hang together as a sort of cultural group? Sure. Um, as far as the occupations of immigrants, you had a variety, but it is important to note that the Earlier, the pre-1800 immigrant classes tended to be, generally speaking, of a middle and upper class background um, in larger numbers. There were larger numbers of kind of more middle class and elite group than you would have in the 19th century. Um, but that being said, there were an, a significant number of people who came as indentured servants, who worked on farms, um, who worked as domestic help within the city, you also had a number of people who were artisans and tradespeople who worked on the docks as stevedores. That was a, a very um, common profession. And the, uh, the printers and uh, journalists would often uh, you know, circulate their work. They would go to churches. They also frequently went down to the docks to reach out to these people. So you had, um, uh, but you had people like Matthew Lyon who comes over as an indentured servant um, who ultimately uh, worked his way up into uh, the ranks of congressmen, that was probably a pretty rare instance. Uh, you had um, pretty clear social stratification in a lot of senses. So in terms of educational level, they varied quite widely from people who went, Burke went to Trinity College, um, whereas you had other people who, who were not uh, very proficient or not literate at all. So you had a really wide spread um, at that period. Um, I think the fear was mainly a, a political one in that 
um, the fear was, and, and it's true that a lot of the uh, Federalists who identified more with the uh, British culture brought their own anti-Irish prejudices with them. So I think that's part of it, is you have this, already, you know, they already have a lens through which to view the Irish, and it's not a positive one. Uh, then, then I think you have um, the uh, political situation in Ireland during the American Revolution is one in which these radicals are already trying to get the French to come in and uh, invade Ireland, and they've already formed these volunteer militias. And then uh, when they emigrate to America, and as American uh, political tensions with the French grow, uh, you have a great anxiety that, in fact, these connections with the French still exist. And um, the French are the, the, the kind of uh, villains of, of the Adams administration in many ways. Uh, but I also think um, the Irish are a, a threat because of what I've tried to allude to into the fact that they, they can pass or pretend. People make allusions to Irish brogue, but you also see a lot of anxiety in that the Irish are threatening because we don't know who they are. We can't tell them by looking, and they, they seem to do exactly what we do. Um, they, they own property, they own homes, they, they vote, but they may have these uh, secret lives and these multiple affiliations that we just don't know about. And so I think there's a famous book called How the Irish Became White, but I think part of the point is the Irish were, were always white, and that's the, and that's the tension um, that exists. It's because they can, they can pass, they can pretend, um, but they are, are secretly fomenting rebellion from within. Thanks, Rochelle, very much. This is, is really uh, fascinating. It's really fascinating for my class, I think, to think about because we just finished reading Edgar Huntley, which mm -hmm. you referenced, mm -hmm. and where they see a wild Irish man yes. uh, set loose in the Pennsylvania wilderness, chased by a wild European-American mm -hmm. man. Um, and uh, they're actually going to read uh, Matthew Carey for our next class in his debate with Absalon Jones and Richard yes. Allen over the yellow fever and the role that blacks played as nurses in that, mm -hmm. where Carrie, uh, uh, there's a notorious paragraph that you know where Carrie disparages the role of blacks as nurses during the yellow fever epidemic of 1793, and Jones and Allen write and respond to that um, with some defensiveness, justifiably. Mm -hmm. But um, what I wanted to do, so they're, they're familiar with Clitheroe, and they're, they're, they're going to read some Carrie um, and think about that debate with African Americans. They're also reading a, a brown sketch called Man at Home, um, The Man at Home, which is a series of 12 sketches in which a Irish washerwoman, Kate, is an important figure. Hmm. Uh, who, uh, the, the man at home is a figure on, uh, on the run. He's a debtor, and he holds up in this Irish washerwoman's house that he had previously lent her the money to rent um, for. And um, so on the French side, you, women figures, uh, in terms of the dangerous, the threat to citizenship, um, the dominant notions of citizenship. Um, Irish or French women figure prominently mm -hmm. um, as, as figures of uh, stylized figures, figures that are feared. Um, what about uh, what, what about Irish women? Uh, you, you mentioned over and over United Irish Men, United, and mm -hmm. all these are male figures in publishing. We know there were thousands of Irish women like Kate, the Irish washerwoman, in Philadelphia and elsewhere. 
what role do they play um, in these societies? In in how are they represented, mm -hmm. in both in the attacks on Irish, but also in the response? Um, they are noticeably absent in the 1790s, but would come to greater prominence in the 1840s and 50s. But um, that is an important point that the um, the Irish uh, Irish American of the 1790s was presumed to be male, and they, despite their uh, rhetoric of universal citizenship, uh, there was not a, a great discussion of uh, women, or if there was, as in uh, Burke's female patriotism, this play that he writes about Joan of Arc, it's very much along the lines of Republican motherhood. So um, there's not, uh, we see uh, Hibernia uh, or Erin figured as a woman very much as a foil to Columbia, but in terms of um, in a lot of either the Federalist rhetoric um, against the Irish or the um, Irish response, we don't see um, a lot of either female voices or representations of women as we would in the, the 1840s. That's where you get um, more novels of Irish womanhood and the Irish family and this idea of um, mother as, as the, um, uh, the link to the Catholic heritage and, and this key feature of domestic labor. So it's an interesting point about the writers that I'm talking about in that they, they talk about universal citizenship, but uh, when it comes down to including um, various populations in that vision, African Americans, American Indians, um, women, they, they, don't, uh, they don't make that step. Now they do make political alliances with the Germans because the Germans were held up um, and you can read this in uh, periodicals of the time, the Germans were held up as the ideal immigrant population, what everyone should aspire to be. Uh, so the Irish will make strategic alliances uh, with the Germans, both in Philadelphia and um, further west. Uh, but they, there's not um, the, the great sentimental, uh, kind of Irish uh, sentimental figure uh, comes out, I think, later in, in really interesting ways. I'm going to make a quick announcement, and I'll pass uh, Carlo on to make a final comment. But uh, uh, just a reminder that uh, Thursday and Friday of this week, we'll have the, uh, the forum and symposium <laughs> on Franklin's Philadelphia, Philadelphia and the Arts and Sciences in the Age of Revolution. will be held at the State Theater on, what is it, 130 West College Avenue. Uh, the program on Thursday begins at 3 o'clock and goes till 5 o'clock, and there will be uh, six of us who are part of that opening forum, scholars from Penn State and from Philadelphia, curators of museums are part of the larger program, um, various museums in Philadelphia. So please join us there. I think the, the discussions that we'll have there will complement nicely what you've been um, hearing and talking about in the White Seminar. And then the Friday program again begins at 9 in the morning and there'll be four symposium sessions and programs up front here if you get a copy that will run through 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Philadelphia. Uh, revolution in literature, Philadelphia's revolution in, in the medical arts is the second symposium, Philadelphia's revolution in uh, art, <laughs> in po portrait painting, um, and in, in, in the visual arts, and, and Philadelphia's revolution in drama is, is the fourth symposium session. Carly, you had a final, a final comment, remark, and then we'll give uh, Rochelle a round of applause and thanks. Thank you.
There are the alien and sedition acts. By the way, I didn't quite get to them. Okay. There they are in all their glory. Cool. <coughs> hey, um, our colleague here was interested in, well, what about the Italians? I'm actually, um, I'm fascinated by the exam. One of the examples, I, you had amassed so much material that it was, it was just an amazing um, array um, of discourse. And that's, that's really, really helpful in terms of setting the stage. But one of the... Um, Last examples you used, obviously it was a slur against Duane that he's affiliated with Jewish people. Mm -hmm. um, would you be willing to talk, uh, do you have, a, can you do a, something about anti-Semitism in the era? Well, I mean, why this is a particular, particularly, you know, um, slurry thing to do. Well, there's a couple um, things that are important. Um, one would be the situation in Barbary, which, um, could be Hester Blum and, and others could talk about um, probably in more detail, but um, the the um, situation of the Barbary pirates, I think, heightened um, fears of Islamic and Jewish um, uh, peoples in the United States. Susanna Rosen's uh, Slavers in Algiers faces, uh, features a character called Ben Hassan. And also Shakespeare is very, very popular in Philadelphia at this time. The Chestnut Theater is putting on a lot of Shakespeare's plays. And, and the figure of Shylock is, is one that um, was um, influential in, in shaping, I think, American ideas of, of Jewishness. And so Certainly, um, I think there is anti-Semitism. The other point that I think that slur speaks to is this idea of the Irish, like the Jews, in, in a very stereotypical way as wandering and, and rootless. And so I think that discussion is, um, is meant to um, portray the Irish, uh, like people of Jewish descent, as having an ambiguous or um, no tie to place and therefore um, unqualified to be a citizen in this nation that is increasingly identifying itself with national space and, and the claiming of, of a national space. So that's not something I think I can um, answer in great detail except to say that there are, you know, there are several ways in which Americans at that period are getting their ideas of Jewish uh, peoples and uh, that the, the Barbary Wars are putting increasing uh, focus on the Middle East and, and people of non-Christian um, descent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.